This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to part two of my conversation with LA Times staff photographer, Marcus Yam, on the Just a Good Conversation podcast. Memorial that he gave me, that flag gift he gave me, the display, is better than winning any photo award ever. Like, period. Hands down in my life. Like, it was better than winning the World Press, winning the, you know, the having a Pulitzer crystal like anything like that was the best thing ever like to have a connection with a reader you know to move a reader so much that they would send you something and write you a, a, a very thoughtful thoughtful letter like you know that's better than anything else it I mean I got the best gift ever I'm Matt Brown host of just a good conversation take a listen to all our archives we've got such guests who have been awarded the silver star won the Emmy and John Benton of Benton Performance. Because I, that car is part of me, as I know it's an inanimate object, and I know I won't be here to ev- forever. The car potentially will be along, hopefully, longer than, <laughs> than me, and maybe who knows how long. But uh, the, the car... Because it wasn't your first car. No, no. But it was your first Porsche. It was, it was like all the other cars were like I was dating. And maybe I had some puppy love here and there, but I fell in love with that car. I fell in love with that car. It, it did everything I wanted to do. And once I got it sorted, it just would do it without failure. Right. Um, I ran a lot of cars to failure and a lot of different things to failure. I just really liked that combination. Go to justagoodconversation.com for all our archives. Let's take a quick break for our sponsor before diving into part two of our conversation with Marcus Yam. Finding, huma- finding humanity in a landslide. I mean, so you, you, you leave that project, you're done. But, it, but it, it's another roller coaster ride up, right? I mean, there's Pulitzer nominations come from that. Yeah, I wasn't thinking about that. Well, no, I you weren't. But, yeah. but it, it evolved because it was an unbelievable story. Your images were unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, the experience was unbelievable more than... I mean, I remember the experience more than the pictures. I mean, I remember meeting the, you know, the three uh, first responders that went out to the slide, you know, talking to them, having a very heart-to-heart conversation with them and, like... You know, having to do a portrait of them and they immediately just like broke down and started to huddle in a prayer circle. And I remember like standing like 15 feet away with a long lens and just like dropping that long lens in the ground or maybe on the side and ran right in because they huddled in. I ran in and picked up my, you know, wide angle, you know, to snap a photo of them all praying together. Uh, I remember like, you know, attending the, the funerals, the prayer sessions and all that stuff. And, oh, man, just that whole experience made me want to do this job even more because I realized, like, um, I think I think this is what I need to be doing more because this experience, as heartbreaking as it is, like, taught me a lot about myself and how I wanted to work, basically. And I think that was, that was an early, early glimpse into what I would be doing, basically. Uh, that's an, it's an interesting that that's, that story and those three weeks really shaped you. 
Yeah, more so than the rest of the year. It was just like, and 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 this goes for any profession or job. Like sometimes it's not the whole year that gives you experience. Sometimes it's like the the small moments, like the the split seconds that really defines you. you yeah, know, what you do in the short time, you know, whether or not you rise to the occasion. Is really what makes you who you are, or or defines how good you are as a storyteller. You know, and your work ethic of I'm not going to stop until it's done helped you. I think so. I mean, much to you didn't stay out four days in. You stayed for three weeks. No, I I really wanted to follow this through, and I did, and I'm glad I I did, uh, and. Um, yeah, I mean, it paid off in the long run because I, I, I walked away from the experience thinking to myself, like, I, I'm so, so thankful for the, for the opportunity to have done that, you know. And I thank my editors for it. I mean, much to their dismay for, for being, you know, uh, uh, relentless, you know. But I still, mm-hmm. I thank them. It's like, thank you for letting me stay on. Thank you for trusting me to stay there and, and work it, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think they were really... Uh, Fred Nelson, the one of the photo editors, the Seattle Times, really like turned around and just you know, and was was I think he was impressed by me because he ended up giving me a project to work on right afterwards, yeah, uh, which was like you know some a testament to like his his uh, trust in me. So that that helped basically. That's nice. Uh, but yeah, I mean that was a good experience, and I I I would do that. I was, I was I find myself doing that more and more now with with stories and and news events. I would just dive right in, go and right at it. The year afterwards was uh, the San Bernardino terrorist attack. But now you're at the Times. I had so yeah. Yeah, so but you've come to the Times. Take a step back. I I after that 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 thing happened, I had. Uh, Worked on a few more things, and then the times I had started a conversation with my uh, my now director of photography, Calvin Hum. Okay. And 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 he basically told, like, said that you know, hey, you know, we we think you might have potential. We, you know, how about this? And I think he basically recruited me to come down to the Times and join the Times as a two-year fellow. Uh, it was called a Mepro program. Mm-hmm. And and he had sold it to me like, look, this isn't a staff job. In fact, you're you're getting no staff job after this. Like, this is just a platform for you to get trained and be the best person you can be and go do something else in your life. And that was how it was sold to me. And I thought to myself, hmm, why not? Right? I mean, I've got nothing to lose. Right. I mean, at that point, I was a little afraid of doing that because Tribune. Again. Tribune was had filed bankruptcy. Uh, Tribune, yeah, had filed bankruptcy. It was splitting the companies into like Tribune Media and Tribune Publishing, and like I was like, "What is going on?" Yeah, like, you guys aren't on the very best <laughs> ground. Yeah, it could be the LA Times, but uh, there were a lot of financial problems. I was with Seattle, the Seattle Times was a family-owned newspaper. Like you know, like it was much more financially sound. Like you know, I was really afraid making that jump to be honest with you well yeah you're smart if you just look at it financially right it's not a company at that point that could go well it could have gotten real ugly oh yeah totally this was the end this was like the end of 2014 this was like still there were so many things going on and I thought the, and but my director of photography at that point was like 
we had met up. I had driven down to California on a road trip. We had met up and instantly we clicked. I had that same feeling I got from like John Davis. Really? I got along with this guy and he was a great guy. Like I'll learn so much from him and you don't meet a lot of those you don't meet a lot of these kinds of people in your career or life. I mean, I don't, but maybe some people do, mm-hmm. but like I would say that like other than John Davis, um like Calvin is probably my the best boss I've ever worked for. Like and if anybody had told me that early, I wish somebody told me that early on in life. Like you only work for good people. Yeah. Yeah. If, and stay with them no matter what. Even if it's a small newspaper or anything, just stay with them because your your outlook in life would be so much better. You'll do so much better because they they're cultivating you. They want to watch you grow. They want the best for you. It's not about what ends up on your resume. You know what I mean? It's yep. not about looking at the New York Times and having this prestigious thing on your CV or anything. It's about having great bosses who are willing to uh, to throw throw you into the deep end and and so that you grow, basically. Yeah. Who care about you and who like want to uh, who see you more than just like okay, he'll snap the photo and he'll do a good job. You know what I mean? Yep. Absolutely. So, so I, I met him and I had that good feeling. So I kind of took a leap of faith and moved down to LA and started working it basically. And uh, I mean, I had a lot of uh, hiccups along the way. I mean, I had a lot of like, what's the word? Uh, 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 adjustment periods uh, where at that point in my career, I still wasn't a great, pho- I still wasn't a photographer that knew how to capture good moments yet. Okay. In fact, I was not so much a, a moment-driven photographer. I don't think I am a moment-driven, I'm not a great, I'm, I still haven't reached that great, great moment capturing skill level yet, okay. but I was like nearly like at a 20 percentile level, which is super low, you know? Right. And, and Calvin realized that and he kind of told me that, like, I think this is one of the things you need to really work on. So, and, uh, and that's, that is a craft. That is something you do need to work on. Oh yeah. I mean, so he threw me in the deep end, like, you know, kind of like the standard stuff. Like I remember like he had me shoot the Rose parade one year, the first year I was there, Oh man, I bombed it so bad. <laughs> and all the editors was, was, was It's just slow moving vehicles going by. I know, but it's the hardest thing to photograph because there's nothing great to, you have to make a picture. Were you in the were you in the I was in the white jumpers uh, walking around. Oh, oh, oh you know, oh. I'm not even in a riser. I have to walk around. Yeah, no, the risers is death because you're just watching slow go by. Yeah. But when you're in the white jumper, yeah, you've got to work your ass off. Yeah, yeah. So I that year, I was just like, I got my ass handed to me by these slow, slow moving uh, floats. And when I came back that first rose parade, all the editors were chuckling because they were like, you did jack, dude. <laughs> <laughs> here's some humble pie. I know. Here's some humble pie. And then they basically never let me forget it. Till today, they always like equate a bad shoot of mine to the first rose parade. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, man. What do you, okay, so let's, let's dissect that real quick. What do you think was it about the rose parade that threw you off or, or you just didn't have your A game that day? I think, I mean, I would like to think that I didn't have my A game that day, but I think I just didn't. I wasn't good about thinking on my feet. That okay. That taught me a very important. That taught me 
that kind of like instructed me to think of my feet faster. Like I think it was a combination. I was looking at my photos on that day, like a couple days later, and thought to myself, like, you know what? I had all the right scenes. I just wasn't composing or, or properly. I wasn't finding the right moments. Were you, I was, were you trying to think about it? No, I think it was just not paying attention or not being super aware, like you know, of what's okay. going on. And I think a lot of surrounding that has, areas. Around. A lot of it has to do with thinking the thinking your feet a lot, and it's like, okay, there's a float. You snap a photo, but then there's another float. What if I lined this up and made it better? Stack like you know, like yep, so, so, so it's more like thinking your feet like that. Like you really can't just snap what's in front of you and move on. Like mm-hmm. you really have to like make a picture, you know. Yes, you do. So, Otherwise, you're, you're it's nothing. Yeah, it's nothing. So I think that day I was F eight and beater, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I they never let me forget it. So. Uh, yeah, that was a good, good moment. And also, there was another hiccup along the way where I came back from a a, a, a weekend assignment with a uh, embed with a Coast Guard, and I was so exhausted. I had accidentally turned my phone on, left my phone on silent, and one of the biggest fires in LA happened downtown near the freeway. Oh, the apartment building. Yeah, yeah. The I lived yeah. downtown. It was not very far from me, and my phone rang like right there by Bunker Hill, 50, like on the corner. My right phone there. rang fifty times. I didn't hear it. Oh, did not hear it. Oh my goodness. I woke up the next morning going. Oh man, I dropped the ball. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, that was a huge fire. I know, I know. I mean, my editor has never really blamed me, but like, I after that, I never slept with my phone on silent. <laughs> right. Just because, like, yeah. you know, just learn your lessons, like here and mm-hmm. there. You know, don't sleep. Yeah, uh, you know, thinking you'll get a good night's sleep. Be Which, ready for be it. Be ready for anything. Um, so then, San Bernardino happens. And then San Bernardino happens. Again, that's 2015. It I guess, seems like, yeah, so geez. long ago. But again, the same thing happens. I was tired from a, a ride along with LAPD tonight. I woke till 5 a.m. that day. I just what went. What was that story about? Just some random uh, ride along? It was a random ride along for the vice crew, for, for the vice squad or something. Okay. I can't remember. I think it was something along those lines. And I had just fallen asleep and, and, the shooting, uh, the, the San Bernardino thing happened about nine or ten yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, right. nine or ten. I was the only one of the few photographers not in the building, and I lived downtown. So our photographers were stuck in the building because they had LAPD had locked down our garage, our parking garage. Why? Because they found a body in that garage. That's an unrelated oh, thing. Oh, we're just completely unrelated. No. So none of the photographers could leave. So I had my... Like, oh, I remember, come on. <laughs> it was hilarious. My my picture editor, Saint, Rob St. John, called me out of the blue. So I, and I was like groggy. It was like 9, some, 9.40, 9.30, 9.40. It was like almost 10. It was like, he's like, hey, what are you doing? I was like, I'm sleeping. Like, you know, what else would I be doing? I just, I went to bed at five, finished my thing at five. He's like, well, I remember his words, like, put some fucking pants on and start driving east now. And I was like, well, that sounded serious. Okay. That (laughs) just escalated. (laughs) Yeah. And I just like did that and just drove east and then was briefed along the way about what's going on. I didn't ask questions. I just did it. So when something that happens, obviously you have the company car, right? I had my own car at that point. You had your own car. Yeah. So what, you just grab your gear, just grab yeah, Basics. I mean, my gear was always ready to go. I had, like, the everyday roller that okay. that had everything I needed, like, you know, just put in a car, you know, take it out of the car the end of the day, like, yeah. um, 
the the loadout kit basically the field kit mm -hmm. and uh and thankfully i was organized like that and that's good just went and uh he briefed me along the way it's like Jesus. A, and you're also lucky because you've just come home you got cards right mm -hmm. because you're gonna need cards you might not have downloaded from the night before right are your batteries charged I had extra cards my batteries were i had extra batteries already to go Oof, man you could have really botched it yeah, yeah not by your fault just because you're not yeah, prepared not ready basically so i was working at night shift too so it was like <laughs> yeah you know uh so at that point, I just drove, and I was briefed along the way, and they were told me, telling me, like, they still haven't found the, the shooters or shooter or shooters, you know. We're driving into a scene, an active scene. We have no idea. And, like, at that point, like, my coworker, Rick Loomis, had just got out of the garage, so we both are, were arriving around the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was just, and at that point, it was a matter of, like, well, I was just following it. I mean, I wasn't going to be a hero, and... And I never covered, uh, I mean, I'd cover a mass, uh, aftermath of a mass shooting, which is different from a live scene. Absolutely. I wasn't going to be a hero, so I just went and did whatever my editors were, were coordinating and telling me what to do. Like, okay. So I got there, talked to Rick, talked to my editors, and I was like, all right, you take the north side, I take the south side, like, you know, we just break it up. And uh, people were still running out, being escorted out. I remember that scene. I remember uh, going hearing that they might that they're canvassing a neighborhood for the gunman and, and how were like, you getting that info you got a radio on you i had a radio on me okay. already uh police scanner uh I was something using, yeah it might, no it might have been an app the scanner okay, app the scanner yeah. app yep and as i listened to that i was like okay i'm gonna go to this neighborhood and i went i remember like even parking the car in that neighborhood was so eerily quiet i parked there and i opened my door and and the cop just like pointed his gun at me he's like freeze i was like who are you I was like, oh, shit, I'm pressed. Don't shoot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Marcus. <laughs> and I remember the, the SWAT guy, it was a SWAT team, like, or at least the county SWAT or whatever, right? And they were like, yeah, okay. Now, you, you do know that you by parking here, you can't ever leave, right? You're stuck with us. Like, you're stuck in this whole thing. You can't leave. So if you want to leave, you should leave now. So I was like, oh, okay. Anyways, it turned out that they didn't find anything in that neighborhood, and we just followed them around canvassing. It wasn't great for images. It was, but it was the takeaway was I learned a lot of things in that assignment, that story covered, and it was intense. Not in terms of like adrenaline, but in terms of like you know the sheer amount of grief that came out of the uh, that came out of that tragic news story. Um, but I, as again, I just knew that. I only had one thing going for me, which was, you know, the me wanting to stay put and stay out there. So for some nights I slept out of my car in San Bernardino. <laughs> this isn't the Jeep Grand Cherokee or no. whatever you were driving at this point. What were you? I, I, I had a, I want to say it was a, at that point it was a Volkswagen Golf. So oh, there's I not was, much leg room there. No, I was sleeping in my car a lot. I was just like working nonstop, like, you know, trying to catch sunrise, sunsets, like, you know, like just relent, again, relentless. And I think that, helped me set myself apart quickly with the editors, you know? Okay. And that basically got them to trust me with big news coverages. Uh, yeah, I, I, it was a lot. I, I remember being out there for a while. What was the most difficult thing you had to shoot when you were covering that? 
because there was a lot of carnage and screaming and chaos and I think the funerals were the toughest ones. I mean, I mean, I mean, I don't. And that like, went on for weeks. It seemed like. I mean, yeah, the sheer amount of like you know victims. I mean, once they started, it just felt like it didn't stop. Like we were all just covering funerals as a team. Like you know, there was so many happening at the same time. I remember. Yeah, I remember one funeral I was assigned to. It was for uh, one of the these one of the ladies who was the only ethnic Vietnamese. So I showed up like a couple hours early to the funeral in a suit. I bought a suit and dressed up and went to the funeral and introduced to the myself to the family and asked for permission to be on the church floor to try to and tag along with the family. And they gave me permission and. Uh, I have no idea why they did that, but like, and I remember the photographers were all relegated to the second floor of the church, right, shooting the a long lens. Yep. Yeah, and I remember one of them identifying me like, "Hold on a second, why is he on the floor?" <laughs> 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 and uh, I I never heard the end of that one, but I'm just like, I just asked permission. I don't know, like you know, right? Um, and I, I asked. I asked. I showed up early, and I asked, like you know. And and we followed them to the burial site where it's just like, oh, man, it's so heartbreaking watching funerals, like especially like the mom for uh, uh, that lady who kept go- saying goodbye and then walking away and then running back and clawing at the ground, hoping that her daughter would come back. So that that funeral felt like it was never going to end. And how do you hand that, handle that visually? Hmm. You just kind of you take a couple. Are you shooting a lot? Are you picking your moments? You got to be. I think I, I I handled that okay. I mean, in hindsight, I don't think I did all that great photographically for the San Bernardino coverage. I was still pretty green and still figuring out my process. And while I figure out some parts of my process in terms of like my 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 work attitude, my 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 approach to like staying through and through photographically I felt like I was still trying to find trying to figure out how to compose on mm-hmm. the fly for mm-hmm. these news moments so that part was still work in progress for me at that point uh, but that being said um, it it, it it was it was hard that whole thing was hard I mean like it was hard because like I had not done anything that intense before and it was hard photographing grief like that and hard to compose and make great pictures and also hard to I learned in that assignment how to identify who was who's a crier and who's not interesting like it's a weird thing to have learned but like and I find it strange to have this skill but you meet people and you go like this is a crier. This she's is my gonna, picture. She's going to cry. Yeah, she's going to cry or this person's going to break down or, you know, just hearing their voice and hearing the how the ripple, the little ripples in like how their voice would tear when they're talking about somebody. Mm-hmm. Like, you just know, like, you know, uh, and you just look at people and you just learn how to read people up and down and, and not in a bad way, but more in the emotional way and, and, and know like, this is, this is my image here. Right. Like, you know, and you need to know that. Yeah. It's nothing wrong. You just have to know. You have yeah. to be able to read a room. Yeah, while it didn't benefit me too much on that assi- on that news coverage, but having learned that was great for the next assignment. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it was kind of yeah. one of those things like nothing you can never ever hit 
I mean, I never really in my career like hit home runs at every turn. I never do like, you know, but I do learn a lot of things at every base that I go to. You know what I mean? Right. Yes. Yeah. And I think everything is a build up, a slow build up to the one news coverage or assignment of story that requires all these skills, the marriage of all these skills together, basically. So that was a rough one. Yeah, that was did, a rough did one. Something like that, do you need to take some time and decompress? Uh, Be like, whew, I just spent two weeks with just everybody crying. Yeah, I think I did. I, I remember doing that a little bit, decompressing a little bit, but I wasn't it's a, like... Kinda, it's got to be a little bit of emotional wear on you to yeah. be around crying and grief and... You know, funeral and funeral and funeral. And you don't know these people, and you're there clicking away. Yeah. And you're in these intimate moments. I would say that, like, um, and this is probably going to bite me in the ass one day, is that I've been pretty uh, decent and compartmentalizing and moving on. Okay. Uh, and I don't know when it's going to come bite me in the ass, but I think being focused on the job helps me. And I think I usually try to keep a a sober mindset reminding myself my suffering does not compare to the suffering of the people I photograph mm-hmm. so I should never like complain about my suffering right. like you know it's like I didn't lose anybody you know I didn't you know see a loved one pass away right. so uh, it's more I think that's that grit of that like hardship mentality that I have but Maybe it'll come back to bite me one day, maybe not. But so far it hasn't. So, And I tend to think that myself is like, well, so I was like, take time off. Like solid time off to just reflect and think about things as opposed to like bounce from one thing to the next. Right. So and you, So let's get into the, the fires. Because okay. you've just been, you know... Johnny Fire for those couple of years you were just yeah. fire 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 for five like, years I think I covered the wildfires in California <laughs> it's strange to think quantified in five years like wow did five years just go by my life like you know I, I didn't think of it that long it just felt like one year right but it's yeah it flew yeah I mean it was about 2015 actually uh, my editors had not put me in a fire yet and there was still fires going on and they were like you're not going to a fire you're not trained you're not you had not been shown the ropes and all that stuff and and I remember that was the year that Rocky Fire happened and mm-hmm. I couldn't go and I was like oh man what a bummer now do you want to go are you saying send me put me in coach yeah I mean I did and and I think they were just like well we will once we send you with the right people and you show, learn how to do it you know because I think it, it's a safety thing yes right? yeah um, and this I is, mean you look back at it now and go yeah they're right I mean God, uh, they're totally I, right I could and, and, and I was just being like uh immature like young photographer thinking i i know how to do this and right uh, it's a fire come yeah. on so how i ended up in sacramento be? for uh uh one of those political assignment one of the assignments covering politics there for the the last week of like state congress or state yeah you know capital stuff and wrapping up my time there spent a week there did nothing but like podium photos and politician photos <laughs> and all this stuff it's great i mean making ch- chicken salad or chicken shit yeah right, right? that's it but then a big fire had flared up that weekend when I was about to drive home. And I was thinking to myself, it was a butte fire. I remember that fire pretty oh. well. It was a butte fire. It was pretty big. It was 70,000 acres at that point. And it just like roared. I was thinking to myself, 
I could drive home right now and nobody would know better. And it would just send somebody out. Like, you know, it was a Friday. It was past 5 p.m. Nobody was, or people had left the desk already. Sure. Like, I was like thinking to myself, oh, would they be mad if I went to it? Like, I wasn't sure, but I was like. And then I, I, I saw, and then I reached out to this one guy that I barely know at that point. His name is Noah Berger. He covered, he was at the beat fire. And I was like, then I thought to myself, okay, I know one person there. All right. I thought to myself, you know what? The editors are going to get mad at me, but what What the heck? And so I went, I jumped right in. Noah showed me the ropes instantly in that hour or two, and we just covered that fire together. Did you have any proper gear? Uh, I had proper gear with me because they issued it to me, but they told me not to go yet. Right. <laughs> I mean, my gear was so new that Noah made fun of it. It was like fresh yellow Nomex. S- like, smelled clean. Yeah, it was so spanking new. <laughs> like, he was just like, oh my God. You're taking the tags off. Yeah, You're still- I literally was taking the tags off that, that fire. Right. Like, oh my God, the tags are still here. Like, rip it off. Like, Medium, oh, hey. <laughs> and, um, and I thought to myself, well, it doesn't hurt. The worst comes to us, they'll scold me. Which is fine. Always comes to us, I'll get hurt, which is not fine. But Noah's there, so at least I have one person, a safety buddy. Uh-huh. So we did that, and I'm really thankful to him for showing me the ropes. And uh, What did he show you? What did he tell you? What did he walk you through that process? Oh, you know, the basics. Like, park your car in the direction you want to be driving out. Don't turn your engines off. Like, you know, watch the wind. You know, always have an egress point. You know, all these basic stuff, you know. And just fire behavior, a little bit of like, okay, this this kind of vegetation, that's going to blow up. Like, you know, if the fire touches it. Right. Like, you know, just you just read all the little stuff and just watch the firefighters, you know. They they know what they're doing. If they say get out, you really should get out. Because right. they're getting out too. Yeah, they're yeah. not joking. Yeah. So all this little stuff. But I think that, I mean, I caught the tail end of that fire when it was at its biggest. So it was okay. K wasn't like too dangerous wasn't too crazy but I made some images I thought was interesting I liked in the beginning and then what the, were they just it was just like slow the, shutter speed fire photos no it was just like a, uh, at dusk you know the sky turned blue okay they were doing a back burn and you can like really see like you know silhouettes of people sky blue sky okay. like fire everywhere. like I was like never made a picture like that in my life before so it's pretty it was pretty at that point I was like oh this isn't is isn't cool. that great, crazy like fire photos can become pretty yeah I mean I remember thinking that's like oh my god this is I like this like this is really yeah, pretty it's almost a little ecstasy like it's like wow this is yeah pretty. I showed that to Noah and Noah was like, it's an everyday fire ah, photo. <laughs> shut up, kid. <laughs> I mean, we're so, I mean, thinking, I mean, we show people fire photos and people are always amazed, but I'm just like, when we look at fire photos as, as experienced fire photographers, we were like, yeah, this is like a par for the course now. Right, you I know? got six of those on Instagram. Exactly. <laughs> um, but then that night, the Valley Fire uh, uh, started. Uh, it was ripping. The night you're coming home. The night, the night that we went to the Butte fire, the Valley fire started oh, across, the, like all the way, to, like uh, west of us. Yes. And Noah and me sat in like wondering what we should do, so we just drove that night. Like we were like, oh shit! So we drove. Like we didn't sleep. We just drove <laughs> <laughs> or something, trying to get there as fast as we could. We got there in the morning, but like it was like a long. I mean. Yeah, because by the time we we finished our dinner and all this stuff, we're like, okay, what are we going to do? Do we want to go? And I, I couldn't reach my editor. So I was like, well, I'm going. So 
off I went. You went. Yeah, off I went. And uh, my editors were thankful I went to that butte fire because they have photos for that without having to send somebody. And and I was already at the valley fire, so like the next big fire. So it was just like, dum dum dum. And next thing you know, it's baptism by fire. I now can cover a little bit of fires, you know, without needing too much help. Right. Marcus is okay. He's yeah. broken in his gear, took the tags off. Yeah, yeah. His boots are broken in finally, <laughs> you know. Uh, so that was... I mean, images from that year covering fire was okay. I remember covering a few more fires after that and not thinking much about it. And then, um, what happened afterwards? Yeah, I mean, it was okay. I mean, like, I didn't think much of the experience other than like, wow, I really like covering fires. Like, it was interesting to cover because I've never done anything like that in my life. And maybe it's different from somebody who lives in California who's used to wildfires and all that stuff, but I've never seen something like that before. How did you treat the devastation afterwards? Because those are some of the photos I was looking at while I was doing my research. And, yeah. and you did have a moment where someone kind of got into your face about it, right? They were angry about you covering their house or being in their space yeah yeah that was much later on and uh, that person turned around and stopped being angry i guess after reading our coverage and actually that reader his name is Darl snyder uh probably connected to me in ways i've never could imagine he um he he well, saw, walk us through the walk us through the, the timeline. What happened? You're covering. I was covering the Erskine fire. Okay. Uh, maybe two thousand. I want to say two thousand sixteen. Like the Erskine fire happened in Lake Isabella. I had shot. I'd been chasing the edge of the fire out into like on the outskirts of Lake Isabella, where his okay. home was. The Kern County out there. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I guess he saw me jump out of car snapped some photos of the fire like reaching his home and circling his home and it was just a photo of like the entrance of his home the gateway with a flag you know mm-hmm. and I kind of jumped back in the car you know and I was I was with my buddy Noah and we're probably giggling to ourselves for no reason or something I don't know like we're just you know two buddies just you know doing our thing and, and moving on and he probably and he said to me in his letter to me that he thought he saw you know he saw a vulture basically somebody who preyed on people's misery and all that stuff and because that's all he saw like you know jump out snap photo jump back in like right. you know and and I guess he changed his mind much later when he looked me up or when he followed the rest of our coverages because I stayed on on that fire for a while and I kept covering it and uh and there's that long term cover a story till the end thing yeah I mean like I mean I stayed as long as I could that wasn't a very big fire so it didn't have to stay too long but I didn't leave so he he saw that and uh and i guess he didn't reach out immediately it took him a while to think about it and um and what he had decided to do was he decommissioned his flag and bought a new one he folded that flag up military style made a case for it he wrote me a letter put that letter in the case shipped it to me in my office and by the time it got to me it was um I was overseas on assignment covering the uh, Iraq war in 17, 2017. And I was in an abandoned building, like getting shelled at. And I was thinking my, 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 my equipment manager, Robin Goddard called me. Oh no, sorry. Emailed me like, Hey, did you order a TV and get it sent to work? 
I'm just like, well, why would I do that? <laughs> why would you think less of me like that? <laughs> well, wait, well, how big is it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and she's like, no, but she's like, well, it's just something huge for you here. I was like, what's this? And she sent me a photo of the pack, like the box. And I was like, oh, that's weird. It looked like a, a big TV box with like handmade like ropes to hold it or something. Wow. And, and I was like, well, go ahead and open it. And she opened it. And an hour or two later, I heard back from her. I was like, you'll never believe what you got in the mail. And she uh, sent me some pictures of like the case he had sent with the letter and all that stuff. And I literally like sat there, cry, like kind of teared up a little bit. I was like, "Wow, this is inc- incredible! Somebody bothered to like uh, follow up. Somebody bothered to to have a connection with a picture and follow up. And like, I think like that." memorial that he gave me that flag gift he gave me the display is better than winning any photo award ever like period hands down in my life like it was better than winning the world press winning the you know the the, having the pulitzer crystal like anything like that was the best thing ever like to have a connection with a reader you know to move a reader so much that they would send you something and write you a, a a very thoughtful thoughtful letter like, you know, that's better than anything else. It, I mean, I got the best gift ever. That is unbelievable that you touched him that way. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was kind of stellar. I wrote him back immediately by hand and sent it back to him. And we did connect a year a year later when I finally got made my way out to Kern County. And I did meet up with him and I did talk to him and took a photo of him. And, you know, we. it's funny. You meet this guy and you're like... It's like we've been friends for a while and we just connect. And he was like, oh my God, like I've never met this guy, never talked to this guy. And yet I, I feel like I know him, you know? You can call him now. He's your buddy. Yeah. yeah. So, so we kept in touch after that. And, and I remember that day I met him for the first time. There was another fire that popped up near Lake Isabella. And I just like, all right, off I go. <laughs> Jesus. Poor Lake Isabella. She's getting hammered up there. I know. I know. And, it, and, and, and yeah. And we just kept in touch by text or by Facebook Messenger after that. Um, and uh, sadly, he died. Uh, he passed away. Darrell passed away about, uh, I want to say, a year or two ago. Actually, today, actually, 25th. Yeah. Today's the anniversary. Today's 25th? Yeah, today's 25th. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, today's the anniversary. He passed away due to health complications. And I remember his last message to me on Facebook, you know, telling me to be safe, you know, that, you know, try not to take too many risks. God, you know, God's watching you and all that stuff, you know. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it was a... It was a sad day. I remember his family called me when he passed, and and I went to the funeral right afterwards. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, but and and so yeah, that was the best gift ever, and um, it was an incredible year. So, so covering fires like that now, how many do you think you got under your belt? A couple dozen. I think so. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I stopped counting Malibu, everything. You've got so yeah, many. I don't count anymore. I just like kind of do my thing, and I won't say that every major fire in the last five years, with the exception of like last year, you know. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, what have I, you learned from it? What would you tell another young photographer about fire coverage, or or even telling young Marcus? Uh, if I had to do it again, I say look beyond the fire. Don't just chase the fire. 
follow the people you know because i think a lot of my images early on was just chasing the fire and finding big flame age and like you know you know and all that stuff but i'm just like and then later on did i figure out my best work from fires came from following people you know finding humanity in the fire you know i i think i think that came from covering the thomas fire here in ventura actually what made that growth for you i think it's because i think it was a combination of being johnny in the spot and being there in time okay like as opposed to like going after the fact you know uh, but after people had evacuated so I was there when it started in Santa Paula well, I was in the on the office wrapping up a 12 hour day going home and it my editor told me like start driving north there's a fire they had just issued the evac order so I drove north not like quickly as fast as I could and the fire just started in Santa Paula and is moving. And I was like think, talking to my editor, debriefing with him. On, he was briefing me on the way there. And I was like, I usually do this for like all these drives. I was just like, all right, give me the sit rep, you know. Right. Um, and then we're talking about it. And, and I was listening to the scanner. And I remember this hearing that the fire command saying like, oh, man, this is moving too fast. Like they were like, they didn't have enough units to send ahead to cover all their bases. So wow. they basically told some of them like, do whatever you can. Like we don't have enough people. Like... And I'm thinking to myself, and the wind reports were like really bad, like 40, 50 miles an hour that night. Oof. And I was like, oh, this thing is going to reach Ventura in no time. <laughs> <laughs> so I told my editor, I'm not going to send Apollo because it's going to be a nightmare getting in there, like with all the traffic, right, you know. Yeah. It's like, well, I, told, I told him, I gave him a plan. I was like, I'm going to drive to Ventura and wait there. He was like, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, it'll come to me. Yeah. So I just ended up being there and people were just slowly milling around, you know, still. So I thought uh, that's where I made some images of like people slowly packing their cars, you know, moving out, like, you know, and I thought to myself, these are fire photos I've never made before. The pre-fire. Pre-fire, basically. And these are the ones I want to make more if I had to do it again. But that requires like instinct and like timing and everything else, you know. For something like that, you just walk up to them and say, hello, I'm Marcus with LA Times. Would you mind if I take pictures of you? Packing up your belongings before your house is burnt to the ground? Yes and no. It depends on the situation. Like, I had a photo uh, of a woman packing her car, and I don't think she realized I'd take, been taking photos of her because I was across the street and okay. just walking walking to my car. And I saw her slowly, gent calmly packing a car, and I snapped a very quiet photo and just moved on, not thinking much of it. Tweeted that photo out immediately. And then her son, like like reached out to me hey that's my mom like you know and uh, did she drive out I was like yeah she drove out she's okay and he was like oh thank god he had no way to reach her like you know so, oh my like, gosh you're playing Red Cross communication director now I know <laughs> I mean that's the power of social media is just I was half I mean the last five years or last six years of the times I mean I was it protests I would live tweet my photos like you know this just happened that just happened like you know I would have I would I think I was like one of the early ones who like connected my camera to my phone mm -hmm. and I would just tweet my my SLR photos out in the open you know and I think that endeared me to my editors too because I was uh, uh, in their eyes technologically savvy right but I, I'm pretty sure I wasn't I just knew I just you know yeah. Cameras, cameras had just gotten better. That's it. Yeah. I was not technologically savvy. Cameras have just gotten better. Have you embraced that social media aspect of photojournalism now, getting your photos out on 
Twitter and on Instagram. And to a certain degree, I'm a little more reserved these days. I try not to like live tweet too much anything. I just kind of. Um, I don't know. I think especially for protests, for like evolving news situations, it depends. I mean, like now that I've covered like conflicts, I try not to tweet too much because I don't. A, I don't want to give away a location or an operation or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Do a story and then tweet the story out. Right. But for protests, it's fine. But I think sometimes you see things happening at a, a evolving thing, like news event, like a protest. You never really know the backstory, so you can tweet it out but you really don't know yet yet. So it's best to, for me, it's, I've learned that it's best to like understand what the context is first before tweeting it out. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm more reserved now just because I'm, I'm a little more matured about it, but like, I still tweet photos out from time to time, like for my camera, like inaug- for inauguration day, I just tweeting photos out as I go, basically. Now are you putting it out on your platform or to the Times platform? They make us tweet from our platform. Okay. So we file to them, but they we tweet from our own social accounts, basically. Okay. So I just do that. And I mean, my platform says I work for the Times, so it's right. basically an extension of their platform. Yeah. It's so, just a long arm. Yeah, it's just a, a long <laughs> arm, basically, a long reach. But so, yeah, I was one of the early photographers who, who did that. I don't think I pioneered it, but I think I made it a, a, a mainstay thing, like, you know, uh, yeah, I mean that was that was interesting that that whole transitional period. So I, I Thomas Fire taught me that, and I tweeted that photo out of that lady, and then I ran into these guys at the Thomas Fire who was trying to save a, a stranger's home in the backyard, and and I just remember driving around the corner, saw this huge mansion on fire, saw all this news crew focusing on the fire, like the mansion on fire. Of man- course, I was like. Meh, it's just a house on fire. I mean, like, I hate to say it like that, but and it's more tragic than that. But I did think to myself, that's a one-shot deal. Like, I'm not going to spend too much time on that. Like, econom- being economical in my time here mm-hmm. while there's fire moving around, hopping around all over Ventura. And I remember walking back to my car, I heard people yelling and screaming at this house, behind this dark home. Like, it wasn't even lit up. And I was like, what's going on? Like, what? Is somebody getting hurt back there? So I walked, like, like on the one of these back alleys to get to the backyard. And I found these guys just, like, watering the home down. Because the palm tree back there was on fire. And just, like, embers were flying off the palm tree and onto the home. Oh, boy. So they were like, and I was like, and that's when I introduced myself. Hey, I'm the a photographer with the Times. Like, can I just take some pictures of you guys doing this? And I didn't know the backstory yet. And and I was like, they were like, yeah. And then I slowly talked to them as we as I was taking pictures and and found the backstory. And I was like, oh, interesting. Um, I didn't think much of it. I'm just kind of like, okay, fine. Tweeted my photo. Moved on. Because <laughs> there were other homes on fire, and then I moved up to a hill where the fire was like you know creeping up this residential neighborhood. And I remember, oh man, people were slow to evacuate that day. And I remember staying down to the very last possible person evacuated before I drove out because I didn't want to drive out out of that like resi- like gated residence residential area without seeing them drive out. Because oh it w- I would hate for me to like have driven out and and right. they didn't and I wouldn't have that in my conscience, you know. Yeah, you don't need that. No. So when I did see them drive out, I finally drove out. But I think it was like maybe a minute or two too late. <laughs> if I'd see like the flames go over this road, this little road, and like it was like a wall of flames. I'm thinking to myself, 
I can't see past those flames. I don't know if there's a car like stuck in a jam, like or in front. Sure. What do I do? Hmm. I'm just like by logical deduction, I'm I'd be. I'd be roast duck if I sat here any longer because <laughs> the flames are coming up the hillside towards me and I was like well the fl- wall flames there I'm in a pocket the flames coming over to my left on my driver's side I was like I'm toast if I stay here <laughs> so I went zero, you know pedaled to the floor and just accelerated through the wall of flame and I've never felt heat like that before in my life like even in an air conditioned car what but, car were you driving a Ford Fusion it was a company car at that point and you can just feel yourself cooking oh man I was wearing Nomex and everything I can still feel like my skin just like sear like just like that momentary like instant flash of heat how long did you drove for that half a second less than that probably it was just so quick snap a finger boom yeah boom but you could feel the heat oh man never want to do that again like you know god that's horrifying yeah Uh, thankfully there was no car on the other side so I just drove through it and I was like oh and then I told my equipment's manager and she was like, is the car okay? That's the first question. <laughs> Rob wants to know. <laughs> I'm like, well, thanks. I'm safe. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good. Good. Car's a little charred. Remember, yeah. I went out with a white one. Now it's black. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, the paint, nothing melted on it. I was shocked. Like, nothing. No plastic bumper fell off. Or anything. Just nothing. your skin tightened up. Yeah, basically. Uh, yeah, that was uh, intense. And then, yeah, the night went on and on and on. I remember, I didn't sleep that night. I just, I kept working and working and working uh, and I would say the last five years uh, five to six years of covering fires have taught me one thing I never sleep the first 48 to 72 hours Jesus how do you do it I don't know I think it's the adrenaline that keeps me up but I think it's the same for all fire photographers we right. almost never sleep like like I think I get into this thing where I just jump in and just go even after a, a full 12 hour work day like I never sl- I didn't sleep for 48 hours that fire so, Oh. When from when it started, so I already had twelve hours before, and then like you know, additional two days. Yeah. Do you see the wear in your photos by like those hour 36, 37 where you're thank God for autofocus? <laughs> I think I, I see the wear in terms of like um, my response times to like regular things. Like I, I've developed this habit I, where I don't like shooting fires in the daytime, so. So yeah, having work, I do that a little bit, but like I tend not to like be super inspired in the daytime. Okay. Like I like the edge of darkness a little better, and I think that's where fire looks like the most beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so I've become known as the the guy who would work through the night, basically. <laughs> you know. God. And then daytime send somebody else. Yeah. Like to cover, you know, cover the bases. Call. So I still be on call and still doing stuff, but like you know. The, I don't want to, you know, I, they, they'll spare me from climbing up the hill in the daytime. Yeah. You know? Get the water drop. Yeah. I'll do the, the, the evacuees or something else, like something more low key, basically. Jesus. So yeah, I've learned that from coming fire. So I remember Thomas fire. I didn't sleep very much. Uh, God, I think it went on for like two, three weeks. Like that thing just went on and on and on. Like we, I stayed out there most of the time and just slept in my car a lot actually I literally pulled pulled on the side of the road and sleep in my car just crash yeah find find a place where you think it's safe you can watch the fire from afar and just crash oh boy so that was that was interesting interesting time for sure 
Now, you touched on it a bit when you said operations. You've spent time in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. How was that for you? Because now you, know, you, you the internship in, in Malaysia was one thing with AP, but now we're talking about going to a, a war zone. Yeah. Whether, <clears throat> I don't know, what was it? You were in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Where else? I was in Afghanistan. I was in Iraq. I was in... Uh, Did you uh, Libya? Egypt? No, I did not. And thankfully, I mean, I'm kicking myself for never having done that. But I think it's probably for the best. I mean, that was like when I was... Egypt was what? 2010, the Arab mm-hmm. uprising 10 yeah, years ago. All my friends were going. I was just starting. I was doing my internship at the time, so I was just starting out. I had no clue what I was doing. Good. And I was like thinking to myself, am I making a mistake? No. Not jumping on this bandwagon. But I thought to myself, I'm not ready. I mean, like, I'm going to go out there and get hurt. Like, you know, I'm, I'll be fine. Like, eventually, eventually, if I want to do this, I'll figure out a way to do this. Did you, learn, did you lean on somebody going to make that trip? Like, whether it was Loomis or whoever was around and say, you got any advice? I know I did talk to Loomis before I went to Iraq. Iraq was my probably my first overseas like war thing, and and Loomis gave me some good advice. But basically saying always be paranoid. That was like his number one advice. Like always be paranoid. Like you know don't like be safe. Don't feel safe. Like comfortable. You know, don't feel comfortable. I think that's what he was trying to tell me. And like and and my coworker Carolyn Cole said something similar but basically just say you know you have to decide whether or not this is the war you want to die for you know just you know and have that mentality you know so that don't don't be a hero yeah so I mean those two gave me some great advice so I mean my editors didn't want to send me to the war initially when the first when the first initial invasion of like going into liberate Mosul and I knocked on my managing editor's door going hey I want to I want to go. I want to sign up for this. And they were like, "No." I was like, "Why not?" <laughs> and they were like, "Because you don't have enough experience." And then I thought I think they thought that was the end of that conversation, and I stood at the doorway. I didn't leave. I was like, and they were like, "Why are you still here?" It's like, "So how do I get that experience in order to go?" They were like, "Oh." I still remember like uh my managing editor's uh response like, "Uh, well, I think he was like lost for words. He's like, "Well, we got to prep you, maybe like send you to a hostile environment training course or something. Like he came up with a silly excuse and I was like, so how do I do that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think he was like, oh shit, I guess. <laughs> so, so they did send me to one and, and I mean, it was not enough to prepare you for covering a war, but like, you know, in their eyes, like, you know, it I was pushed, something, it was something. And, and I think I pushed hard enough to go. So then they and eventually trusted me enough to go. It's so. a crazy time. The war, war is nuts. It's nothing like a, a fire or floods or you know, mudslides. You're, you're in a foreign land. Yeah. It's Anybody can turn on you. you. You just don't know what's what out there. You know, there's nothing. I mean, it makes me, having covered those things, it makes me blessed to come home. Every time I come home, I feel blessed and safe. Like, you know, we don't have any of that shit out there. Right. You know, with the exception of like January oh. the 6th. Oh, but even that, <laughs> even though that absolutely, let's say that's our been our worst day ever. Yeah. That is a weekend. Yeah. That's nothing. That was, that was a picnic compared to like real war. Right. Yeah, there's nothing. So I, I think that taught me a lot quickly. My first, I got to Mosul uh, in the evening 
in we had just arrived at the at an abandoned building where like some of the media was staging and some of the soldiers were staging using his barracks okay and i remember my first friend there my first friend i ever made was a guy I would do a story on uh, his name is wasam and he was a uh, uh, a bomb diffuser <laughs> for the Iraqi army. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> we made we became instant friends and we were like you know we were like the same age and we were like cuz we didn't speak I don't speak the language and he didn't speak English so we were like What did he speak? Was it fart was it uh, Arabic? Arabic? Okay. And so and what, what nationality was he? He was a he was Iraqi. He was Iraqi. Yeah. Okay. So he was just showing so we communicated by Facebook. So he was showing me photos of what he does and I was showing photos of what my life looks like and like next thing you know I was like hold on a second what are these things you're holding? And he was like, <laughs> he just explained to me like, like bombs, they explode. Like, and then I realized, oh, you're a bomb squad guy. I see. And I was like, I, told, I just turned to my, uh, turned to uh, the reporter I was working with, uh, Molly Hennessy Fisk, and I told her, hey, we need to do a story in this guy. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, so that was a, uh, that was one of the first people I met there. And then we just did a lot of stories, not in the war itself. Like I never did any serious embeds. Mm-hmm. I right. think, I think it was too early. My editors didn't want me to go all in, like follow like the, the counterterrorism teams and like, right. And see all that stuff. Like, you know, they wanted me to focus on like all the human stories around the war. And I think we did a decent job at that. Uh, and it's fine. I mean, it was a good experience. I learned a lot quickly there it was literally another experience of where it's baptism by fire mm-hmm. you know there's only so much preparation but being you got to kind of do it yeah you literally got to do it so i i did that and oh god I, I still remember the the things i saw from that from that coverage and the smell and everything like that hasn't left me yet like did it, you have a good interpreter we had a, a great interpreter. I had two two different interpreters there. I met one on my first data too. His name was uh, oh god, why am I? I'm blanking. I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> Where's gamer Marcus? He would have known it immediately. Oh, I know, I know. Uh, but like, I had great interpreters there, and, and those uh, are key. God, those, those are, key. are key. Yeah. So we did that in uh, 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 the story. I'm most proudest of from that coverage was when uh, we got access to the civil defense guys, they're basically the white helmets of Iraq, mm-hmm. um, who told us they were going to be like taking us out on uh, in one of these neighborhoods and they're not sure what they're gonna find yet, but they think it's gonna be big. So we showed up at like, at the time they told us to show up and at the place they sh- told us to show up and we followed them into the war zone in a neighborhood called uh, Al Jadida and and which means I think it means new neighborhood and interesting <laughs> and and we showed up it had been like like a, a nuke or something had gone off in that neighborhood oh god like people were just emerging out of the rubble like kind of clean up and pull out things and all that stuff and piles of bodies were everywhere in bags and like people were still pulling out bodies like I was like what is this and it turned out that like you know uh, uh, US coalition led forces had dropped uh, a big big bomb on what they thought were isis fighters and which i think it was like two isis fighters on the rooftop mm-hmm. what they didn't know there were civilians in those buildings and nearby buildings so that neighborhood was leveled 
right. uh, from that bomb. Massive collateral damage. Massive, massive. I mean, the numbers were disputed. I mean, it, our initial reports were, I mean, initially we were told it was up to 275 or something by the civil defense guys. But then, like, I think the Pentagon report puts out 111 or something. And it's hard to kind of grasp what that damage looks like until you get there what a oh, yeah. bomb does in buildings and things the dust the i mean it's, it's unbelievable. No. yeah it's hard i mean I, I remember getting there i remember it and this is where i really believe that everything prepares you for a moment because i think in that moment everything i've experienced or learned brought was just put into spotlight in that moment i showed up walked in walked up immediately heard a guy screaming and yelling <laughs> and i was like i ran i just ran towards his voice and i ran into this like driveway there's a guy on the ground screaming and wailing over the, the body bag you know uh it turned out to be you know sister who said you know we were told she was pregnant because she looked like she had a bump a baby bump and all that really just dropped on my knees and started taking pictures didn't even like that was like my instinct, basically. Just drop and start taking. He didn't even realize I was there to begin with. No, he's in his moment. He was in his moment, and I just started taking pictures. He was, and they started to remove him. He was wailing. I followed him out. It was just like one thing led to the next, and I was went to the scene, photographed all these people, and the next thing you know, like as I was doing this, I was counting the bodies in my head mentally, like one, two, three, like twenty-four, you know, twenty-seven, like you know every time I saw a new one. Um, and I explored the, the streets around there, you know, some kids took me around the corner into a basement, you know, where it was leveled and people had survived the bombing by being in that basement and, and I just, and, and walking through the rubble, seeing a dead ISIS fighter around the block, uh, also seeing a, an ISIS base nearby. Uh, and he asked me if I wanted to go. I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to an ISIS space. Like, I'm not going to uh, ISIS HQ because it's booby trapped. Yeah. Like, there's no way. I'm not even touching it. Like, he you was know, like, oh, you want to you want, you want, see what this guy looks like? Like, don't touch that body. It's booby trapped, too. Like, you know, you just don't know, right? Now, we talked about this before we started. Like, how are you taking in the consideration of being a Westerner with camera gear and a media vest and keeping yourself focused on not being a victim uh minimizing your your exposure as much as possible so that being said i wasn't there very long i mean i knew that once we got in that how i once i understood the scope of it i knew i had limited time i knew it was maybe at best i'll have an hour here before I get kicked out, before somebody realizes there's media here, right? I just don't know, right? I'm not gonna take it for granted. Slowly work my photos and whatever, right? Yeah. I'm just snapping. You don't have that time. I'm just like snap, 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 snap. Like keep moving. Don't, don't. I don't have. I didn't have luxury to like work a scene. And you're working the scene with a helmet on. Helmet on, everything on. Like you know, just kept shooting. Boots, full gear. Everything. Like, two cameras. Two cameras. I got two cameras. Seventeen thirty-five, something wide. No, like actually twenty-four seventy and seventy-two hundred, basically okay. nothing else. Uh, and, you basically uh, keep those cameras on that body the whole time. Don't take them off because of dirt, yeah, dust. Yeah, just do that just because I don't want to be changing lenses. And also don't want to be wearing pouches or all that stuff, right. you know. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Cards. Uh, I mean, I put as big as of a card as right. I can do. I mean. Because you're not going to shoot 4,000 images. No, no. I wasn't shooting that much. And, and I knew 
Yeah, it was one of those moments I knew I every mo every mo every shot mattered at that point. Mm -hmm. Don't 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 motor drive anything. Just like get your shots, move on. Get your shots, move on. Do you do that on single and quiet mode? You know, are you Canon or Nikon at this Canon. point? I mean, okay. I just do just single. Just single. So single. you're not. It just click. No, I'm shooting on a 5D. Click. I don't know how to shoot. Like the click. 5D motor drive isn't that great. <laughs> so it's like one, one, one. Like you know. Okay. Uh, and I remember the boys had led me to a. a uh, uh, a corner around the neighborhood and then at some point I realized what was going on and we were absolutely too close to the front line I can see the front line and the the, the, the smoke and all the fight I can hear the fighting that's and, close oh we were super close to the front line at that point and at that point those bought the cadavers were had been buried there for a week because the front line had just moved forward right and that's how they, people were able to come and retrieve the bodies and all that stuff so it's not that far it's just a couple blocks oh boy that's a, that and I, I realized that, uh, i was being led closer to the front line and and i started to see men show up all of a sudden like on the street corners watching me and i remember like right, it's time to go Cautious. I don't know who these men are. I trust these boys a little bit because they're just boys. But you know that it could be a flawed theory too. Yes. Uh, and I had just like just learned just enough basic rudimentary baby Arabic to get by with things, you know. Uh, and I just said, um, "Yeah, I need to go back to my car. I need yeah. to rejoin my team." Because I, <laughs> I was separated. <laughs> yeah, I said because I separated from my uh, translator and reporter. They had gone to do their own thing. I was doing my own thing. Oh Jesus! You were literally that on your own. Yeah, literally. So I need. I needed. I, to, I thought at least because our, strat our strategy was not to be attached by the hip. Our strategy was to see more and report more. If I had more to report, I can add to it, right? Yeah. If I, there was something going on, they would let me know too. They can call me and like, hey, come over here. You know what I mean? So and they were just interviewing people, so I don't need to be with them the entire time. No, but you almost <laughs> want a shadow. Yeah. That being said, I mean it was kind of a. Somebody's you know. got to watch Marcus's back. Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, that was probably not a great move, but I got to see a lot more because of that. Yeah, that's true. See, there's the double-edged sword. Yeah. So, maybe, maybe, maybe I had a horseshoe on me. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I will never do that again. But um, that was a great experience. So, I would say that the best way to minimize risk is to minimize exposure. So, just... Know that you're there for a short time and just get out. Don't stay there too long. Don't linger. Don't like make yourself available. Right. Uh, so we were sure enough. We got kicked out. But I want to say like an hour in, like some commander for the 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 CT squad showed up and like CTS squad showed up and was like, why is media here? And we were kicked out immediately. <laughs> As we were... <laughs> See ya. Yeah, I mean, I had this moment where I was driving out and getting escorted out. And... And and I could see, like, we were passing other... The Washington Post and The Guardian coming in. And we are like... Like this. <laughs> oh, God. Party's over. Party's over. But I think they tried to get close, but the roads had been blocked already. And then they could do what... You know, they could only see what they could see, basically. Right. They could shut that place down if they want. Yeah, so they did. And I think it's, you know, we're lucky to have gotten that access. And uh, that was probably the r report I'm most proud of. Proud of, Because after we put that out, I think it stirred quite a, a, a response from everybody. Um, and, and I think it changed the way they called in airstrikes after that. You know, I mean, I say that with... with 
I think it did change the way with the way they at least changed the procedures of how these airstrikes were called that mm-hmm. you can't just call it and you've got to like get a guy on the ground look at it like you know assess sure. the yeah. building yeah so to not repeat the same mistakes again basically right so, yeah it's hard yeah it's hard I mean those the, the the fighters are literally in a town no no they're standing on a roof debating yeah, the coalition right, right to go after them yeah I mean it's switching they're, will, they're willing to die right and have the other 200 people die with them exactly they Which, would corral these like <laughs> civilians in the building like it's it's really shitty of them to do that yeah I yeah. mean it's it's so weird uh, to even call it a war because it's really not like what you think war is where you wear the yellow uniform and I wear the green right, yellow there's uniform there's no like gritty hand to hand combat yeah, we march like, across you know. the field and we're all wearing uniform no they're dressed no. like regular civilians and they're Dead. egging them on yeah I mean yeah you couldn't tell who's who you know people would just shave off their beards and walk out as a refugee you don't know yeah and I remember going to a refugee camp and they were screening for uh, you know suspected ISIS folks and and they look like it. you just don't know who's who no. so they had to do background checks on everybody who's your father who's your grandfather like you know and you could like, be making up any story yeah yeah I remember in one of that in that screening process story they left me in a room with a suspected <laughs> ISIS fighter and I was like hmm interesting <laughs> 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 they forgot I was in the room so he just walked out and he was just there like kind of you know staring at you you're staring at him no he was staring at the wall he didn't know I was standing there oh he didn't know you were yeah oh god (laughs) I was like hmm interesting but uh, but yeah it was a uh, it was an intense assignment and I think I spent like six six to eight I want to say more than six weeks there but it was worthwhile. I learned so much quick, so quickly. And I learned a new thing about myself from that assignment, which was that I, I had a, a tendency to stay cool under pressure. So when things were going off and things were just going nuts, I would just be, okay, let's just do what we have to do. Was that, you feel that was slowly being developed in you? Maybe, yeah. I think that was slowly like percolating, but then in that that assignment made me realize, oh, like, yeah, man, I can do this. Like, I can, I, you know, I'm not gonna freak out. I'm not gonna like run off. Like, you know, right. I'm more. I mean, call it being slow or something. But like, I, I hear a lot of explosions go turn around, and be like, where is that coming from? Like, <laughs> that you know, might be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as opposed to like, ah, run off. You know what I mean? Um, so it did. I did learn that about myself from that assignment, like with the sheer amount of artillery, gunfire going off all the time, and like you know, doing that bomb squad story, following a, a guy, a bomb squad defuser, following his footsteps, like his exact footsteps in right. places, and where he just like at one point he like took me to a site where he's dismantling a bomb, and he just like throws it. I mean, it's funny to say this: a dynamite <laughs> at the bomb. He just lights it up, lights a cigarette, lights this up. And he's like, run. And we run. Jesus. (laughs) And you do your best impersonation of Carl Lewis and just sprint as fast as you can. Yeah, I was running. I was running with the camera held back just to take a picture of him. (laughs) That's a journalist. (laughs) Yeah, it's just like, it didn't work out very well. But I was just like trying to take a picture of him. (laughs) God. Well, let's talk about the big announcement that was made uh, a couple months ago, right? 
Is that yeah, what I found? Like a month or two ago? Yeah. yeah, like it wasn't too long ago. Marcus is going international. Yeah. Uh, it's like a it's like a TV sitcom. You're going, you know, <laughs> international. Oh, I know. Uh, I hope Why not. and how did this come about? Uh, well, how did this come about? About a, a year ago this time, January last year, 2020, um, when the pandemic was just starting overseas. When someone decided to throw poop at a fan. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> or, or, or eat uncooked meat or something. I don't know. Right, just yeah, who knows? You know how this started. Yeah. Um, I went to my executive editor because he had sent out an offer to have chats. He's, he's like, anybody who wants to chat can chat with me. Like, you know, so I took him up and off. I scheduled a one-on-one -on -one sit down session. It's like, I wanted to get some advice from him. It's like, Hey, I've been at this paper for five years. You know, I'm starting to feel a repetition in what I'm doing. Like, what do you think I should do in my career? I'm, how do I get to the next phase of my career? I'm like, I kind of asked for his advice and, and he does not know who I am. Like I'm too small to pee. Like, you know, he's an executive editor. Like he's up there. Right. And then he he like kinda of pulled out my file and was like, I see you've been here for like a certain amount of years. I see you did all this work. Like these stories are published under your name. Like you know and he kinda of like gave me this advice, like, you know, you have all the makings of like being a correspondent. Have you really thought about that? And I was like, Hmm, I don't know. I mean, maybe. And it kinda got to me. It's like, Yeah, I think that's what I've been doing the last like kinda sort of part-time hustle maybe on the side you know on and off launching and overseas from california it's like yeah i think i could try to do this maybe i don't know i mean it's a huge leap um yeah i mean it's scary then it's scary and now because now there's an expectation to perform before it was just a side hustle that nobody expected anything out of you right you know um so that's how that came around so after that conversation i launched overseas and test drove this job basically you know like did a trial run and like where'd tried. you go i uh i went to hong kong i went to mexico i went to uh, uh south korea i went to lebanon shooting stories uh, shooting stories and then I went to uh, I wish I knew you were going to Lebanon and had you pick up some food for me oh man I mean <laughs> uh, and then uh, I went to uh, uh, Armenia Azerbaijan and then um, after that where did I go Afghanistan and then I went to the UAE and then back here okay so like it was just like a whirlwind basically like uh, non non COVID related that right. is. So I missed out on most of the COVID stuff. The only COVID stories I did last year was in Mexico and here in San Diego when I was like back home for a brief moment and I was on loan to our sister paper at the Union Tribune. Right. So, uh, but then I missed out. I mean, that was how that came out. That's how. That's what happened. And then they just announced the promotion like a month or two, like two months ago, I think. Right. And how did they approach you? What do they say? Uh, in what way? Like this, it's over the loudspeaker. That Marcus, the white courtesy phone. Marcus, white courtesy phone. <laughs> come to the fifth floor. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I mean, mean they, I mean, it was always, an, it's always. I was guess there a they, cake ribbon? Like it's a big announcement. No, I mean, it was. I Calvin mean, approach you and say, "Hey, young buddy." <laughs> uh, no, I mean it's very anticlimactic. It was just like, "Hey, you got it." Like you know, and I was like, "Oh, really?" And I was like, "Yeah, you got it." And. uh that was it. Uh, I think I, I didn't do anything to celebrate. I just kind of like, okay, I'm going back to work. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like anything crazy for that matter. You know what I mean? 
other than the fact that uh um yeah i don't know i mean it was like i it was super anticlimactic there was no red carpets being rolled out no fireworks launched i i think i was in the middle of doing something on deadline and i just went back to work like deadlines 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 yeah i don't think i even had a celebratory drink because i couldn't even drink with anybody at that point because of like covid and all that stuff so i kept it pretty like low-key and just did my own thing i got a lot of messages from people but then that's it i mean i mean i don't see this promotion this position any different from what i was doing before and uh and i think it's important not to because you know it's no distinction it's, it's not i'm not i don't want this to get to my head or anything no like, absolutely and, not and i think it's important to just focus on the work yes and the only difference now is i'm given given a license to do it yeah so, so that being said, I have no more excuses. <laughs> I have to go do more work now. <laughs> right. So you're going to be based in Seoul first. Yeah. And then I'm going to move to Beijing eventually, once, if, they, if they let me move there. Uh, and then, Does the time have an office in Korea? Uh, South we, Korea? We have, yeah, we have, we have a correspondent in, in Seoul and we have a, a, a bureau in Beijing, basically. Okay. So eventually i join our bureau chief, uh, bureau chief in beijing and uh hopefully they'll get more people to join us and then there'll be a you know a big enough office in beijing and i think beijing's way i'd like to be uh just part of because it's just the most right now politically interesting place to be oh, yes. yeah oh, yeah being inside is so different from like 10 years ago like you know where before uh, 10 12 years ago for the olympics like that china is so different from today's china oh god yes yeah so I, I if i can get in it'd be great like i would love love to find a lot of human features in there and and do some great there's so many cultural features to do there oh it you you will be having an unbelievable path to forge like it's just going to be so much stuff going on you're right in the epicenter yeah i mean i hope let's hope i get that visa i don't know <laughs> xi jinping if you're listening no i'm just kidding <laughs> could you uh find him on twitter and give him exactly. a call exactly just like hey by the way will you approve my visa no i'm just like no oh. is that the process uh i mean i've had the visa in works since march last year okay so i mean they've just been waiting i think between the pandemic and what's going on politically without two countries i have no idea i mean they're citing the i mean it's it's a lot of things the, the country hasn't really opened up yet right. a lot of countries haven't opened up yet so it's been really hard to travel what drives you what lights your fire hmm you know that's a good question i think what drives me is this this desire to beat myself in a way like if i did okay yes if i did great yesterday by desire the only person i have to beat is myself like you've i've got to be better i've got to make a better photograph than the one i made yesterday that this is that thing it's like wanting to like follow through and through partly because i only want to like grow and grow and grow and i think i'm lucky in that sense i have great editors and mentors at the times who are focused so heavily on my growth and that's all we talk about half the time beyond them ripping me a new one right um but what drives yeah i think that's what drives me is just this idea of growing 
like you know constantly wanting to be a better uh better and better at everything it's charting this growth like from putting like how many 10 sets of 10,000 hours in you know what i mean i think when i when i got to seattle i had i I'd finished reading a malcolm gladwell book about i think it was outliers or something or the tipping point and it mm-hmm. was like and he introduced the 10,000 hour and i calculated the amount of 10,000 hours i needed to put in at the Seattle Times and at the LA Times before I get to like a certain phase of my career. And I'm just following that track, basically. I did, I said 16 hours a day, six days a week. Like I'll get there in 2.65 years or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> who do you rely on at the Times? Who do you, who do you, uh, you know, bend their ear? Uh, you know, my director of photography, Calvin. Calvin's been a great mentor to me. Uh, you know, just not just as a, an editor, but mostly as a, 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 a older figure okay. person, like a, a wise sage in that sense. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I've, I just go to him all the time and just like, hey, you know, I've got this problem. Like, what do I do with this? Like, what you do know, you think? Yeah, what do you think? Like, always just run things by him, never react to anything. Just like, you know, and he's been a good advisor in that sense. Like, sort of like the one you need, like one I needed in college or something. Right. <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah. Where, where's Marcus in 10 years? 2031. 2031. You know, it's hard to say. I uh, I hope to be doing what I'm doing, but for 10 more years. Like, the thing I'm doing, have to do now, but hopefully I'll be doing it 10 times better in 10 years. Um, wow. That's going to be unbelievable. <laughs> that'd be hard. Uh, if I'm but not, that's what you strive for. That's what you want to do. Yeah, I don't want to be the same every no. year. No, I hate to repeat myself. In fact, I try not to repeat myself. I think one of the biggest motivations to do something different from what I've done the last five years is probably because I, I felt the, the repetition of work. Even like as much as I love covering wildfires and all that stuff, I I started to feel like... I needed to move, go away and do something else because wildfires will always be here. Natural disasters will always be here. You know, the the news in the U.S. will, will be interesting enough, but it will always be here. Like, you know, things will always happen. I need to grow in a different way from other photographers and my staff and have a different skill set. And like, and that skill set involves me learning how to be a correspondent, a good reporter, you know, a good, like, uh, 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 being good at managing like uh, contacts abroad, right? You know, knowing all these fixers and translators. You know, uh, networking with like diplomats and like you know, um, and, and and military people. And I don't know, just a variety of different skill sets that are different from like your everyday. That's that different from what's required from your everyday newspaper staff photographer. I'm learning. I've learned so much now that like. I'm managing visas all by myself, like for all the countries I have to go. Like usually my editors do that for me. Uh, My my late editor, Alan Hagman, did that for me. And ever since he passed, I haven't really found somebody who would do that, take that mantle. So I've taken it upon myself to do it myself. So I've done all the paperwork myself. Like I would do all the logistics, all the planning, all the security planning myself. Like, so these are skills that nobody, you know, a normal staff photographer usually wouldn't do as much unless right, he, he or she takes up. initiative, you know. Um, but, I mean, I don't see it as a negative. I see it as like, well, if I have to work three times harder, why not? It makes me three times better in the long run. Mm-hmm. It's three times more painful, but I'll be three times more thankful. <laughs> <laughs> What's the one photo you wish you could 
do over again, the one that got away, whether it was out of focus, the exposure, composition, just missed the moment. Is there one that just pisses you off you missed? Oh, man. One. You only get one. I only get one. Uh, I'm trying to think now. Because you've thrown your ass in some serious situations. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think of the most recent, recent things. Um, yeah, it's a. Uh, it's kind of hard to say because, like, I I know I miss moments and pictures all the time, and sure. and I'm I'm flawed like that, and everybody's flawed like that. There's nobody's gonna be perfect, but I've never actually fixated over one. And that is a weird thing to say. Well, but you're like, better than me. <laughs> I think it's because, because like I know I'll get too worked up that like it doesn't matter anymore. So I, I try not to fixate over it. Um, I would say that like, yeah, I miss moments all the time. I mean, like the last thing that I missed was probably, you know, I would say that, yeah, thinking back like that experience in Gaza, covering the, the border protests and all that stuff and all that shooting going on. I mean, the picture I think I missed the most, I, I think I wish I made was a better, was bet, were our better images uh, of what life looks like in Gaza. I mean, I think I made some of that daily life stuff, but like, I wish I spent more time doing that as opposed to just like pictures of people throwing rocks at right, the border. Right. I mean, yeah. I, yeah, I did. Do that s- becomes cliche 101. Get I mean, it. I did some of those photos, but like, I actually didn't spend a lot of time of on on pictures of people throwing rocks in fact i did I, lo- I saw a lot of photographers there who had amazing pictures of people like using catapults and rocks and all that stuff and my my photo of it is actually pretty mediocre compared to theirs and i never thought that was the defining photo of gaza in fact the the, the photo that i thought was like more important to me were were the photo of like the family grieving in the morgue you know, greeting their, you know, when they received their dead son and like the funerals and like uh, um, their daily life there. Um, and also what fishermen's do like in Gaza with the, you know, with their very little like sea space they could fish out of, you know, all those stories mean more to me than like a bunch of people throwing rocks and getting shot at, you know, not that that's not good, but like, I just think that like, you know, those are the pictures I wish I made more. Looking back on my time, I wish I had been more economical about like the the conflict and more on the human front. Is that something you're going to carry over to Asia? I think so. Yeah, I mean, thankfully Asia isn't like in a state of war. I no, mean, most but, parts of Asia, but, at least. But those kind of pictures make those kind of pictures. Yeah, I think I want to focus more on the, the the humanity of it more so than anything else. I think that's ultimately what I'm learning is like the strength that I have, which is the ability the ability to to put myself quickly in those shoes and just like understand what it feels like or make our readers understand like put them there basically yes um so i've got to hone that skill a lot more and play it up so that's what my goals are for asia which is just to find more human stories that have universal meanings that americans you know especially californians can kind of get behind basically right. beyond just being like a provincial story out of asia that only asian people will care you know what i right. mean um gotta make californians care and how do you make them care it's gotta have you know universal themes in there you know it's right. gotta be about the things they care about humanity right people yeah 
So that's what I put to do there. If someone said to you, Marcus, make me one print, I don't care what kind of photo it is, what's the one print you would make them? To be like, this is a Marcus Ham print. Hang this in your house. Oh, the hang in your house? Yes. Uh, you know, I, I somebody asked that of me once, and this was like 10 years ago. And I probably won't make this. Uh, it's funny, I brought up the one print I make is a. Um, there's a photo that I made inside a bathroom while taking a shit. And, and it was in New York, and I had looked up, and it was like two wet towels hanging to dry. And there are two different colored wet towels. One was blue with polka dot, like dots on it, and one's a striped red. So it looked like the American flag being hung. <laughs> <laughs> and it had like weird green wallpaper and tiles and all that stuff. It kind of looked like something out of Ukraine or something. And I snapped a photo of that while taking a dump. <laughs> and that's the print I'd make, just because that's who I am. <laughs> I was totally thinking it was going to be a 15 millimeter fisheye at a concert at a mosh pit. Some guy flying over the top of you no no, no 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 just like i took this one while squeezing a loaf <laughs> like here you go enjoy <laughs> magnus oh. opus case closed like my career is done oh. like you know essentially like you know yeah i mean i'm i mean i like to see things from a lighter point of view so I try not to take myself too seriously like Good. that like yeah is that yeah people all come up to me it's like oh yeah you work for the la times like yeah big deal like you know they pay my rent like you know yeah i'm like you i'm like, not curing cancer yeah i'm not curing cancer i'm not landing in the moon you know right so i'm just like everybody else the only difference is like i have a camera i take better pictures than you I won't even say that. <laughs> I wouldn't even dare say that just because it's just like the amount of like hustle it takes to make a good picture is so hard sometimes. It is. So, so by the time this airs, you'll be overseas. Yeah, I think so. Right? You're leaving this week? Yeah, leaving this week and then uh, packing up and then flying out and then uh, going to go probably sit in quarantine somewhere. Oh, Jesus, uh, that's right. <laughs> Two weeks in a Marriott or something. Oh, I don't even think it's that. I don't know. I mean, I'd be, last time I did it, it was like a 150 square feet room. Barely enough space to do push-ups. Oh, my God. And I had to like push the bed all the way to the side just to make space to do like any workout or have space to stretch or do anything. Oh, boy. So, yeah, I mean, I've done... I've lost like six weeks of my life to quarantine already. Oh, Marcus, that's brutal. <laughs> Real quarantine, not stay-at-home orders. Yeah. Where they actually lock your room. Like They lock yeah, you down. They lock you down. It's you know. just below prison. It's almost, but just right there. Yeah, yeah, almost. The only difference is if I, I have... You really, don't get shanked in your place? I, no, I don't get internet. I, I, I have internet at the best thing. Okay, <laughs> that's good. You know, it's not great, but, you know, it's better than nothing. Well, so. I can't thank you enough for your time, uh, for taking this out of your time and your day to do this right before you're ready to jet set across the world and make beautiful pictures. But I wish you all the best. Oh, thanks. Be thanks safe. For, thank you. Thank I you. Will. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for making beautiful photos. Oh, you're welcome. I, I, I love looking at your stuff, watching what you're doing, the pictures that are growing. Yeah, you should probably become, get like... like side testimonials from like folks that we know like Robert Hanashiro who ran that workshop because I remember what he told me from that workshop is like dude you would you you overtake you oversnap because <laughs> he looked at my take from like 
200 photos from a lap of swimming. <laughs> yeah. Like, what the hell? <laughs> oh, I remember. Oh, I remember. Yeah, that was great. I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm yeah. just like snapping photos. I'm just pushing buttons. Yeah. Like, you know, what do you expect? Professionals? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Be good. Thank you for your time. No, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me here. Anytime. Thanks. All right. Thank you for listening. Please click the like button if you enjoyed the episode and subscribe. You can find all the shows on our website at 